You are listening to Riverhouse Church's Sermon of the Week. We hope this talk equips and inspires you. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Give you a moment to get there, and I'm just going to kind of prep. We're going to start a new series uh, over the next that will kind of go through at least the end of October. And just to, I guess, be real with you all, it's probably going to be disturbing in some ways, but I think it's going to be powerfully, uh, just powerfully used by God, and I think there's going to be powerful encounters with his heart. I think there's going to be new um, places of freedom and liberty in our lives, and really the uh, a fresh uh, anointing and grace is going to come upon, and, and that's really what we're going to talk about is grace. And I believe that God's going to take us on a journey of really getting down into deep waters of understanding what grace is, because it is so central to who we are as Christians, and God has, it's, it's, a, it's the gift from God. So we're going to talk about grace. It's going to be real. Are you ready for real? You know, the summer, we were, I was talking earlier this week, the summer's been more, you know, a lot of rest and residence, and the last sermon series, I think, kind of let some tension out. Amen, right? And now it's going to be a little more disturbing. But, you know, I actually like disturbance because to me it's the sign that Jesus is leading. Right? If I didn't, if I didn't, I wouldn't need a leader if I didn't need to be disturbed because that would, that would suggest I'm already on the right path. I need a leader, and his name is Jesus. And so I love his correction. I love when he encounters me with new things, and I love when he does new, new, new depths of transformation in my life. Amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians 12, I'm going to have you stand. We're going to read a little lengthy uh, portion of Scripture. We're going to start verse 14, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So this is the word of the Lord, and we stand to honor it, because this is the most pure and authoritative thing that will be spoken tonight. Verse 14, 1 Corinthians 12. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it's not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed members, each of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there's many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Where our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And that is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, you ready? So I've been on a journey. Uh, the last year of my life, God has, I've been on, it's been a year of a lot of discipleship, and the Lord has taken me uh, in, in many ways to new depths of relationship with Him and into 
uh, really uh, some disturbing realities and truths that I had to come to about myself, but uh, a reformation of, of who I see myself to be, who I experience my call to be, this church to be, and, and even who God is. And I want to, now I feel released from the Lord um, to take you in this process with me. And I preached a portion of this in, in the now gathering, but this is um, even a different expression of what kind of began there for uh, the corporate church. And uh, what I, I would now say is that uh, I experienced grace about 12 years ago. I started having real authentic experiences with grace, and even before then. But this year, I've actually been transitioning from just experiencing grace to actually understanding it. And that has been a huge transition in language that I would not have been able to tell you a year ago. And when we speak of the word grace, you know, who's heard, who's heard the song Amazing Grace? Yeah, everyone, right? And if you haven't, you're probably not, I'm just joking. I, I was probably going to regret what I was going to say. But amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost and now I'm found. I'm blind but now I see, right? When we think of grace, that song has very much shaped our theology and it's totally right. Like grace redeems us. Grace forgives us. Grace is unearned favor from God, right? But grace is also the empowering presence of God and it's the anointing of God, right? And it's this beautiful thing. It's, it's, the, it's literally the presence of God upon us is grace. When we say the word favor, that's the same word in the Greek for grace. Grace is not just forgiveness, it's redemption. Grace begins our story, it sustains our story, it completes our story. Grace is what we sing about tonight. It was him hanging on a tree. It's going to take us to a wedding day where the bells are ringing and everyone's pure and holy and we're singing. You're beautiful, right? It's all grace. It is one big narrative with the force of grace that began and the force of grace that will complete, right? And it is our anointing. It is our identity. Everything we are, it is a gift that we received, not by works, but by the gift of God of grace, right? And we need to understand grace. And this is what I have come to some humbling acceptance to in this year of my life, and that is grace is a lot more comprehensive and a lot bigger than what I realized, right? And in immaturity, and I want to define what I mean by that, meaning at first glance, when we first are walking with God, and I'd say for me, the first decade of my life, in Jesus, so like 17 to 27, I, you're, you are only experiencing God at your first time through, right? There's actually something that's gleaned. For those of you that have walked with the Lord longer, you know. There's something you get retrospect when you can look back on a decade, right? There's things you can only glean from that vantage point that you did not have the wisdom or the experience to understand in the moment. Right, so it's like an iceberg, right? Iceberg, 10% up top, 90% are underneath the surface. It's this way with the grace of God. We experience God, but in our first, in, in the immature, in the first 10 years of our, at least, and probably more, and I'm sure as you go longer, it's even more, right? But you, you're only experiencing the, the 10%. Right, because God operates in hidden. He's secret. He, his kingdom's like leaven. He's not discreet. He's not overt. Or he is discreet. He's not overt. So, so much of his working in our life, when we say grace, we're only saying about 10% that we can see with our naked eye. Right? We're, we are oblivious to the 90% beneath the surface that is massive. Right? So, this is the problem. I experience authentically grace, but I only see about 10% of it. And so, in my own interpretation of my testimony, there is an overemphasis on my role. 
right? Because I only see 10%, I overemphasize my role. Let me give you like an example of this, right? Anybody, uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> when I first saw like uh, some healings happen, I remember I'd be like, I don't know if I should share that testimony because it might like puff me up. And I was like, I'm going to be humble. I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not going to share that in this situation. <laughs> like, think about this, okay? I, like, reached my hand out <laughs> and touched someone. He healed them. And I'm afraid to share that testimony because I'll get puffed up. Like, dude, the way I put my hand on their shoulder, it was phenomenal. Overemphasis. Right? I overemphasized my role in becoming a man of prayer, and it made me cocky. I started literally being critical. Why are people not praying like me? Because I overemphasized my role in even what God was doing in discipling me in, by grace. Right? Does this make sense? Right? So because we only see 10%, we're, we're oblivious to this because it actually takes a lot of time to learn the hidden ways of God. Right? We overemphasize. That overemphasis allows an ecosystem where the, where the flesh, the ego, the self-nature can flourish. And there's actually a mixture in our spirituality. And it actually, this is what happens. Our testimony in some ways becomes a stumbling block to our, to our future in God. Because I've interpreted my story, right, in all these little ways of overemphasis, 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 right? I, I actually, there's still ego woven in even to my own understanding of my, te of my testimony and of who I am. Yes? Should have seen the blank stare last service. I told him it was the worst one I've ever had in ministry. I'm like, Suresh and Thomas are here from India, and that's what you're doing right now. You're this quiet with me. So the self-nature will always manifest in one of two ways. And this is just, you know, oftentimes it's both, but this is easy, easy categorizations, categorizations, right? Sinner, right, ego will manifest in like the typical sin, compromise, insecurity, right? This path of self-deprecation or Pharisee, arrogance, self-righteous, I'll get an ego about my spirituality, right? So it's either a woe is me, more like the kind of in this victim or compromise or insecure or powerless or kind of puffed up, arrogant and elitist, right? That, that's what the ego will do. And, and the fruit of the ego, regardless which way it actually manifests, is it will produce division of all kinds, it will produce division. We see in 1 Corinthians 12, we see the insecurity. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. Insecurity creates division. I'm going to remove myself from the body. Or, because I'm an eye, I don't need, I don't need the hand. Elitist, arrogance, it still it produces division. Right? And God has designed the body and created all the parts differently so that there would be Union, we would be one. There would be no division. If one member's honored, we're all honored. Right? If I'm just a hand and not a foot, I can't honor the foot. Right? If I think I'm everything because I'm the I, I'm not honored. Right? So it creates division. The ego, the self-nature produces division. Right? So this overemphasis of our own role in immaturity, and again, this is just part of immaturity. It's immature. Right? You, don't, you, you experience grace authentically, but you have too much of your own self woven into your own understanding, even of your own testimony. 
right? And I'm just going to really put myself into this story tonight because this is a lot of what the, been, God's been doing in my life. And uh, a lot of you know uh, I started dating in the last year. Uh, yeah, Jackie's in Brazil, so I can talk about her. I'm just joking. She knows I'm sharing this. She has, I, I have her permission. Um, she's, she is in Brazil right now on a, on a ministry trip. But, um, you know, I, I, I fell in love with her uh, very quickly. And uh, it was beautiful, and in many ways, like, I'd been praying for a long time, wanting that experience. And, uh, and yet, at the same time uh, of this beautiful thing taking place, uh, there was also this very disturbing uh, thing happening inside of me of just this rampant comparison. And I just found myself uh, full of fear and anxiety and constantly comparing, and I began to find myself comparing my anointing to her anointing, my calling to her calling. I'm a 28-year-old pastor. This is my story. This is my past. This is my brokenness. This is how God redeemed. And I, and I found all this, this checklist inside of me and began comparing with the underlying question is, are you good enough for me? And it was very disturbing, and it was week after week after week after week, and weeks turned to months. And it was three, four months of just not being able to get over that something in me, and it felt very justified, had this, I don't know. I had this deep, even though I loved her, there was something in me. And, and, and she was aware of it, and it was just, it was, there was something in me that was keeping my distance and keeping my space because I wasn't quite sure she was good enough for me. And uh, I believe that in a lot of ways, what I just shared is a microcosm of Christian community that there's these differences of our past and our story and our calls and our anointing and the grace of God in our life. And there's this ego that, you know, am I, am I getting the, my best option? Is this the best thing that could be happening for me? Is this helping me? Is this promoting me? And uh, in the midst of this, uh, the Lord and his grace, he met me with what I uh, am now calling a, a goodwill hunting moment. And uh, anybody seen the movie? I'm going to show you the clip in a second. Uh, and in, in this clip, Matt Damon's this genius, and he knows everything, literally everything. He's a super genius. But he's a broken kid, and he rips every counselor they send him to apart because he's too smart. And they send him to Robin Williams because Robin Williams is also like a math genius. But he'd just come out of a grieving process of leaving, losing his wife. And he had done art therapy to cope with it. Matt Damon goes into his office and starts ripping him to shreds because he knew everything. And uh, this scene, it's the next time they meet in a park. And Robin Williams is now confronting back because he got really angry with him. The first meeting. This is their second meeting. And he speaks some truth that I think is powerfully relevant. So let's play a clip. So what's this? A taste his choice moment between guys. This is really nice. You gotta think for swans. Is this like a fetish? It's something like maybe we need to devote some time to. I thought about what you said to me the other day about my painting. Huh. I stayed up half the night thinking about it. Something occurred to me. I fell into a deep, peaceful sleep and I haven't thought about you since. You know what occurred to me? No. You're just a kid. 
you don't have the faintest idea what you're talking about. Why, thank you. It's all right. You've never been out of Boston. Nope. So if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo. I know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. Seen that. If I ask you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus of your personal favorites. You may have even been laid a few times. But you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. When I ask you about war, you'd probably uh, throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watch him gasp his last breath looking to you for help. When I ask you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet. You've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Known someone that could level you with her eyes. Feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. Who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel. To have that love for her be there forever. Through anything. Through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in a hospital room for two months, holding her hand, because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss, because that only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. So what Robin Williams so beautifully does is he disturbs the discrepancy between the head and the heart. Disturbs the discrepancy between our doctrine and our beliefs, between what we say we believe and what our life actually tells us that we believe. And so many times as Christians we say grace, I, I know grace. We don't know grace. And for me, my moment as uh, preaching in a pastor's conference with Thomas and Suresh. Suresh was there, I think, and this was in March. And I was, the Lord said, tell your testimony to these pastors about when I broke your shame. And I start sharing my testimony, and towards the end of it, tears are pouring down my face. I see people are in tears all across the room, spirits ministering heavy in the room. And I'm saying something like, I was a nothing and a nobody. I was stuck in all, like just all of it, in the shame and all the brokenness and all of it. And I said, and I am who I am because his grace, he saw me and he loved me 
anointed me. And now he's, he's sent me across the world. And he's given me this ministry. And he's giving me these things. But I was a nobody. It was because his grace. And as I'm saying this and watching the spirit minister in a room, I just see Jackie. And the Lord's like, then why? There's so much elitism in you. And I knew in that moment, there was a discrepancy. There's a discrepancy between what I could testify to pastors and what my actual life was telling me I believed. And it was a very painful reality with a lot of tears and a lot of questions. But it made me recognize that I had some reinterpretation to do. I needed to reinterpret my story because somehow the interpretation of my own story had produced a subtle elitism within me that was manifesting in the places where my heart was most wanting connection and love. So I just want to put this out there for you all. If you struggle receiving honor, receiving compliments from people, you don't understand grace because you've overemphasized your role and it's your ego that's cringing in those moments. If you have fear about God's promises being fulfilled on your life for your own personal significance, you don't understand grace because your story was started with the, when you never could deserve it. It's being sustained by that same grace. It will be fulfilled by that same grace. It's not about you. The reason you're afraid about your future is because you're afraid you're gonna mess it up. It's not about you. You don't understand grace. If you struggle sharing testimonies and something puffs up when you do, you don't understand grace. You've overemphasized. If you live in an ecosystem of insecurity and comparison, competition with other people, you don't understand grace. If you're in a habitual sin pattern, you don't understand grace. If you live in unworthiness or condemnation, you don't understand grace. And if you don't understand grace, there is reinterpretation that's needed. And it's uncomfortable. Reinterpretation of our story is highly uncomfortable because the reinterpretation of our story means the reformation of our identity. And it's uncomfortable when paradigm shifts start happening and, and things start pulling down because you have to start getting really exposed before God and before people. But this is biblical. I just want to give you probably the, the best case in point example would be Peter when he has a revelation of the Gentile inclusion. For those of you that don't know what that means, because those are big words, when he receives and acts this vision that all of a sudden he's in that he's to eat these unclean things and then he's invited to Cornelius's house with a Gentile which he'd never walked into a Gentile house because of his understanding of his own identity and his national identity he was not allowed to walk into that house because he was God's favored they were not and not only did he have to walk into the house he had to bless that the spirit of grace and the favor of God was coming upon these Gentiles he there, there was a very, very humbling acceptance that Peter had to come to and the Jews after Peter had to come to to embrace the Gentile inclusion, which is why we're here, which is this. God's choice of Abraham, who was the least of these, a man with no offspring, had somehow morphed in their own understanding of their national identity into, their, into elitism. 
they saw God's choice of them, God's favor upon them, as it actually puffed them up and they were elitist and it had severed them from the very world that God had picked Abraham for his grace to go and bring salvation to. Do you see that? Peter's understanding of his identity and his own national identity was elitist and God picked Abraham because he was the least of these. Right, this is what happens. God picks us in our brokenness, but somehow because the ego is still festering, because we're still not, we're immature, right? The elitism and all these, this brokenness, this ego gets woven into our understanding of this purity of his grace, right? So Peter has this revelation that God's choice, his favor wasn't just for Israel, it was for the sake of the world, right? And the reality is that in the church today, you guys, the thing that I see breed the most division in the house of God, it's actually God's dispensation of grace, right? Because grace is forgiveness, it's redemption. Grace is also favor. It's anointing. Right? It's empowerment. It's authority. It's all gifts of grace. And this is, this is the reality. I just want to speak very plainly to this topic because it's offensive to the self-nature. And so I'm hoping that some of the self-nature gets a little rubbed right now because God doesn't want us. We can't live with it. it, is, it we, we need it out so that we can become like Jesus. Right? This is the reality of God's favor, God's chosen, God's choice. Right? If, you, if, you, if I were to ask you to close your eyes, you could think of people in your life that you could just say, like, God's chosen them, right? God's favor is on them in a distinct way. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right, this is the truth with favor. Favor is not fair. God gives more favor to some people. God gives more grace, more anointing, more authority to some people than others. So that doesn't sound fair. It's not fair. Favor is not fair. This is the truth. I want to talk about four things about favor you can study uh, Matthew chapter 25 on the parable of the talents, if you want to do your own study. But this is the truth. Favor is not fair. One, no one deserves favor. God gives it his own discretion. Right? Nobody deserves favor. It's unearned. All of it is unearned. He gives it as he desires. He apportions it as he sees fit. Right? Paul had favor on his life to be an apostle to transform the Mediterranean world. He did nothing for it. He was persecuting and killing Christians. Right? No one deserves favor. God gives it at his own discretion. Two, everyone has been given a measure of favor. Right? So you might not have as much as your neighbor. It might be different grace than someone in your life, and I guarantee you it is because that's how it is. We're all different. But you have something. God has given you favor. The fact that you're here, the fact that you know Jesus, the fact that you've heard his voice, the fact that you're saved is favor. Right, so we sometimes we start comparing, and I don't have it. No, you have something, and it's amazing. Christ Jesus lives inside of you. You've been given a new creation, a new identity in Christ. You are seated with him in heavenly places. You have favor. It might be different than those around you, but you have favor. Three, from God's perspective, it doesn't matter what you start with. It's what you do with it. God cares about stewardship, and actually your personal fulfillment has nothing to do with the measure of favor on your life. It has to do with the degree of faithfulness you exercise in stewardship. Right? Your personal fulfillment has nothing to do with how much favor is on your life. It has everything to do with how you steward and are faithful to what God has called you to do with your life. In the parable of the talents, some start with five, one starts with two, one starts with one. But the two that steward it faithfully enter into the same reward, the joy of their master. 
We are living in a world that is so consumed with, I've, you've got to arrive at something and have this platform. And the reality is the world has woven it, that ecosystem is alive and well in the church. Right? It didn't take very long to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. It doesn't take us very long. God can save us in a day and get us out of the world into the church, but it takes a long time to get the world out of the church. And this idea of this, this promotion ladder and, the, and we're climbing up to these things, that is just not biblical. God's caring about stewardship. That, that's what your personal fulfillment is resting upon. Jesus, right, in Philippians 2, it says, Jesus, who was equal with God, did not try to grasp or promote that. He actually emptied himself. Adam, what did Adam do? He grasped for equality with God. Jesus surrendered and self-emptied. The ego, the self-nature is always grasping. It's always grasping for more. Jesus, our model, our leader, is to follow him on the path of humility. Right, so no one deserves favor. God gives it as his own discretion. Everyone's been given a measure of favor. It doesn't matter how much you start with. It's about what you do with it. Stewardship is what brings joy. And fourth, and perhaps most importantly, favor, right, which is empowerment, anointing of God's grace, is explicitly given for the sake of those you're called to serve. Explicitly. It is not for you. It is It is. It is given for you to be generous with to the world because we're made for generosity. It brings us joy. Right? So, so now think, think, pull out a second. God puts us in a community of people called the church, and he apportions his grace upon us in different measure, different anointing. Right? You see this? This is offensive. Because he is literally creating an environment that is supposed to be a ticking time bomb for the self-nature to manifest and blow up. Uh, anybody in here? You're like, oh, that's why I get so offended sometimes. Because he designed it that way. He wants the church to be the most miserable place that the ego would ever want to be. He wants the church to be like the self-nature's like, I hate that place. It's, doesn't it make sense? You're like, oh. Everyone's like, it blows my mind. People are like, why is the church so broken and messy? Like, because he's designed it to crucify our flesh. Right? So, so the fleshly, egotistical self-nature will manifest. So arrogance, insecurity, judgment criticism, slander, elitism, all of it. It will all show up in the church because God's grace is offensive to the self-nature. Right? So this is what I'm trying to preach on tonight is that it's going to manifest. All right? It's going to manifest. The question is not if, it's what you do when it does. Right? If we try to, this, there's two ways that you can deal with it when the self-nature manifests. I can try to justify it, shove it down, act like it doesn't exist, blame someone else for it. This is why criticism and slander feels good. It actually brings pleasure when you're living in insecurity to pull someone else down and justify and why, you know, why you're actually just offended that God would put grace on them that you'd want. 
right? So you, you can stuff it. You can just, right, you can just try to, ju- you know, just, no, no, it fits. It fits in there, I promise. This is, it's supposed to be that way, right? Or you deal with it, right? So if you, if you just, if you don't handle it in the right way, if you, if you partner with pride and self-protection, it will produce division. It will divide you from people. It will divide you from leadership. It will get you critical. Bitterness will start manifesting. It will produce division, and you'll either, because of elitism, I don't need the church, and I don't need community, or because of insecurity, they don't want me there. Right? But you'll create your own ecosystem if you don't deal with your ish when it comes up. Someone asked me, what did I mean by ish? I'm not cussing. I mean issues. That'll preach. All right. So that's the bad way. Or there's the correct response, which is humility. Just humility. And if we will humble ourselves... It will produce unity, and we will actually grow in favor, right? And I actually don't, I want to take grow in favor out of the clouds like it's this mystical. It's actually really practical why you'll grow in favor. The reason you'll grow in favor is because favor is explicitly given for the sake of those you're called to serve. Meaning this, the favor that's given to me from God is explicitly for your sake, right? The favor that's on your life is explicitly for the sake of the people in your life. Right, so this is the deal. The flesh actually severs you from the grace that is given to another person for your benefit. Comparison, competition, insecurity, arrogance, it severs us from the grace of God on a person that's, that we're supposed to receive from. It breaks my heart when I see it. Breaks my heart. People get stuck in all of their justifications and they're severing themselves. Because they refuse to humble themselves. And embrace the reinterpretation of their story, of their lives, of their identity, of their history in God, and the reformation of their identity. So I, I want to I make this really within reach of what this, we're, we're going to go on a journey of reinterpretation here for these next months. Probably two months. So if you're not all at church. <laughs> I guess that's the risk we all got to take. We're going to go on a journey of reinterpretation, but this is, this is what I mean by that. Rein, reinterpretation, if we will embrace the process, the path of humility, and, and allow God to take us on this reinterpretive journey down beneath the surface and down to the depths of that iceberg of grace, it will lead us to the same place. Lead us all to the same place, which is the foot of the cross. All the favor, all the anointing, every testimony, every good thing, everything that we are, anything that we are that's good, it will, its source is the crucified Jesus who gave his life for you and me. That is, that is grace. That is grace. That is where grace manifests. Grace is a fountain that poured forth of water and blood from his side, that cleanses and sanctifies and redeems and forgives and heals and empowers and anoints and bestows new life and made us a new creation. It was grace. So if we'll go on the journey, there will be radical unity because we will all find ourselves that it's not about my story. I'm actually part of his story. 
and we're a part of his story. And his story began on a cross and it ends at a wedding. It's the great equalizer. Grace is the great equalizer. Grace is the only way that a people can truly be healthy family and one. Because if it's not about grace, it's about us. And if it's about us, there will always be insecurity, comparison, competition, judgment, arrogance. It will always exist unless it's about grace. So going on the reinterpretive journey will take us right there where we will all be humbled beneath the foot of the cross. And there will be no hierarchy. There will be different dispensations of grace as we're humbling ourselves under his leadership. But we will all be equal, found and loved by Jesus. Reinterpretation, in my experience, three, three pieces. One is open confession. I say open confession because exposure is key. You have to expose yourself. When you have insecurity or competition or judgment or criticism towards another person, you have to expose yourself. Because usually the people that we have that towards are the people that God has put grace on that we need. So whether I'm in insecurity and I'm offended by someone that has it, I have to humble myself. I have to honor and I have to receive because that's where Jesus is actually wanting to disciple me. If I have arrogance towards someone, that's when, you know, you, gotta, you, gotta, you have to expose yourself. I, I, I shared this last, last uh, service. My, uh, I had a cousin, I think he was 16 years old, heroin addict. And uh, literally the day that he was giving his life to Jesus, he's on a chair, there's a group of people around praying. He's repenting in tears. Spirit of God's coming upon him. And the Lord says, I want you to, to, to speak over him. And I want you to tell him that the grace on his life is actually greater than the grace that's on yours. And I couldn't do it. Shut my mouth, walked away. So I was that insecure. Probably two, three months later, Lord convicts me in prayer and says, expose yourself to him and tell him why you did it. Tell him what you did and why you did it. I said, I, I sent him a message. I said, I need to repent to you because I, uh, the Lord told me to tell you this and I didn't. And it was because I was insecure and threatened by you. 16-year-old heroin addict. It's the self-nature. It's ugly. Open confession. We have to openly, because that's how you crucify this. You expose it. And sometimes it's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm dealing it with between me and God. No, no. You confess your sins to one another and you'll be healed. You have to expose this thing for the ugly imposter that it is and let the grace of God crucify it. It is not you. It is the old nature but it will dominate you if you don't deal with it. Two, repentance. There's new thoughts. There's usually lies, partners, things. God has to brainwash you. You know what I mean by that. And then three, reflection. As you've openly confessed, as you've repented, 
there's time of reflection and God begins to give new thoughts and new understandings. He began to take me back on my own journey and say, here's how you interpret this in a way that produced this understanding that you were stuck in. Let's take this to tear this down and then build it back up. That takes place in reflection. Open confession, repentance, reflection. Easy? All right, well, we're just going to do it then. So there's going to be a space for open confession right now, and the aisles are open, the altar's open, and there's no need or desire to expose you, um, but it's for the sake of open confession. So I'm going to start on the, the elitism side of things. If you recognize tonight, I see elitism in my story, arrogance, jealousy, self-importance, lust for power, manipulation, pride, prejudice. That's in you and you just see it. I just, you can come forward. It's a beautiful moment. No shame. This is where freedom's found. You humble yourself. You just, you just get on your knees. Yeah, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. This is how pride gets destroyed. Thanks for listening to the Riverhouse podcast. For more information, visit riverhouseministries.com.